Chapter Nineteen of the Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter Nineteen. Some Recollections of Mortality. I had parted from the small bird at somewhere about four o'clock in the morning when he had got out at Arras and had been received by two shovel-hats-in-waiting at the station, who presented an appropriately ornithological and crow-like appearance. My compatriot and I had gone on to Paris, my compatriot enlightening me occasionally with a long list of the enormous grievances of French railway travelling, every one of which, as I am a sinner, was perfectly new to me, though I have as much experience of French railways as most uncommercials. I had left him at the terminus, through his conviction, against all explanation and remonstrance, that his baggage-ticket was his passenger-ticket, insisting in a very high temper to the functionary on duty, that in his own personal identity he was four packages weighing so many kilograms, as if he had been Kasimbaba. I had bathed and breakfasted, and was strolling on the bright quays. The subject of my meditations was the question whether it is positively in the essence and nature of things, as a certain school of Britons would seem to think it, that a capital must be ensnared and enslaved before it can be made beautiful. When I lifted up my eyes and found that my feet, straying like my mind, had brought me to Notre-Dame. That is to say, Notre-Dame was before me, but there was a large open space between us. A very little while gone I had left that space covered with buildings densely crowded, and now it was cleared for some new wonder in the way of public street, place, garden, fountain, or all four only the obscene little morgue, slinking on the brink of the river and soon to come down, was left there, looking mortally ashamed of itself and supremely wicked. I had but glanced at this old acquaintance when I beheld an airy procession coming round in front of Notre-Dame, past the great hospital. It had something of a Massaniello look, with fluttering striped curtains in the midst of it, and it came dancing round the cathedral in the liveliest manner. I was speculating on a marriage and blues life, or a christening, or some other domestic festivity which I would see out, when I found, from the talk of a quick rush of blouses past me, that it was a body coming to the morgue. Having never before chanced upon this initiation, I constituted myself a blouse likewise, and ran into the morgue with the rest. It was a very muddy day, and we took in a quantity of mire with us, and the procession coming in upon our heels brought a quantity more. The procession was in the highest spirits, and consisted of idlers who had come with the curtained litter from its starting-place, and of all the reinforcements it had picked up by the way. It set the litter down in the midst of the morgue, and then two custodians proclaimed aloud that we were all invited to go out. This invitation was rendered the more pressing, if not the more flattering, by our being shoved out, and the folding-gates being barred upon us. Those who have never seen the morgue may see it perfectly, by presenting to themselves an indifferently paved coach-house accessible from the street by a pair of folding-gates. On the left of the coach-house, occupying its width, any large London tailor's or linen-draper's plate-glass window, reaching to the ground. Within the window, on two rows of inclined plane, what the coach-house has to show. Hanging above, like irregular stalactites from the roof of a cave, a quantity of clothes, the clothes of the dead and buried shows of the coach-house. We had been excited in the highest degree by seeing the custodians pull off their coats and tuck up their shirt-sleeves as the procession came along. 
it looked so interestingly like business. Shut out in the muddy street, we now became quite ravenous to know all about it. Was it river, pistol, knife, love, gambling, robbery, hatred? How many stabs, how many bullets, fresh or decomposed, suicide or murder? All wedged together and all staring at one another with our heads thrust forward, we propounded these inquiries, and a hundred more such. Imperceptibly, it came to be known that Monsieur de Toll and Sallow Mason yonder was acquainted with the facts. Would Monsieur de Toll and Sallow Mason, surged at by a new wave of us, have the goodness to impart? It was but a poor old man, passing along the street under one of the new buildings, on whom a stone had fallen, and who had tumbled dead. His age? Another wave surged up against the tall and sallow mason, and our wave swept on and broke, and he was any age from sixty-five to ninety. An old man was not much. Moreover, we could have wished he'd been killed by human agency, his own or somebody else's, the latter preferable. But our comfort was that he had nothing about him to lead to his identification, and that his people must seek him here. Perhaps they were waiting dinner for him even now. We liked that. Such of us as had pocket-handkerchiefs took a slow, intense, protected wipe at our noses, and then crammed our handkerchiefs into the breast of our blouses. Others of us, who had no handkerchiefs, administered a similar relief to our overwrought minds by means of prolonged smears or wipes of our mouths on our sleeves. One man with a gloomy malformation of brow, a homicidal worker in white lead, to judge from his blue tone of colour, and a certain flavour of paralysis pervading him, got his coat-collar between his teeth and bit at it with an appetite. Several decent women arrived upon the outskirts of the crowd, and prepared to launch themselves into the dismal coach-house when opportunity should come. Among them a pretty young mother, pretending to bite the forefinger of her baby boy, kept it between her rosy lips that it might be handy for guiding to point at the show. Meantime all faces were turned towards the building, and we men waited with a fixed and stern resolution, for the most part with folded arms. Surely it was the only public French sight these uncommercial eyes had seen, at which the expectant people did not form en queue. But there was no such order of arrangement here, nothing but a general determination to make a rush for it, and a disposition to object to some boys who had mounted on the two stone posts by the hinges of the gates, with the design of swooping in when the hinges should turn. Now they turned, and we rushed. Great pressure, and a scream or two from the front, then a laugh or two, some expressions of disappointment, and a slackening of the pressure, and subsidence of the struggle. Old man not there. But what would you have, the custodian reasonably argues, as he looks out at his little door. Patience, patience. We make his toilet, gentlemen. He will be exposed presently. It is necessary to proceed according to rule. His toilet is not made all at a blow. He will be exposed in good time, gentlemen, in good time and so retires, smoking, with a wave of his sleeveless arm towards the window, importing, "'Entertain yourselves in the meanwhile with the other curiosities. Fortunately, the museum is not empty to-day.' Who would have thought of public fickleness even at the morgue? But there it was on that occasion. Three lately popular articles that had been attracting greatly when the litter was first descried, coming dancing round the corner by the great cathedral, were so completely deposed now that nobody save two little girls— one showing them to a doll, would look at them. Yet the chief of the three, the article in the front row, had received jagged injury of the left temple, and the other two in the back row, the drowned two lying side by side with their heads very slightly turned towards each other, seemed to be comparing notes about it. 
Indeed, those two of the back row were so furtive of appearance, and so, in their puffed way, assassinatingly knowing as to the one of the front, that it was hard to think the three had never come together in their lives, and were only chance companions after death. Whether or no this was the general, as it was the uncommercial, fancy, it is not to be disputed that the group had drawn exceedingly within ten minutes. Yet now the inconstant public turned its back upon them, and even leaned its elbows carelessly against the bar outside the window, and shook off the mud from its shoes, and also lent and borrowed fire for pipes. Custodian re-enters from his door. Again once, gentlemen, you are invited. No further invitation necessary. Ready dash into the street. Toilette finished. Old man coming out. This time the interest was grown too hot to admit of toleration of the boys on the stone posts. The homicidal white lead worker made a pounce upon one boy who was hoisting himself up and brought him to earth amidst general commendation. Closely stowed as we were, we yet formed into groups, groups of conversation without separation from the mass, to discuss the old man. Rivals of the tall and sallow mason sprang into being, and here again was popular inconstancy. These rivals attracted audiences and were greedily listened to, and whereas they had derived their information solely from the tall and sallow one, officious members of the crowd now sought to enlighten him on their authority. Changed by this social experience into an iron-visaged and inveterate misanthrope, the mason glared at mankind, and evidently cherished in his breast the wish that the whole of the present company could change places with the deceased old man. And now listeners became inattentive, and people made a start forward at a slight sound, and an unholy fire kindled in the public eye, and those next the gates beat at them impatiently as if they were of the cannibal species and hungry. Again the hinges creaked and we rushed. Disorderly pressure for some time ensued before the uncommercial unit got figured into the front row of the sum. It was strange to see so much heat and uproar seething about one poor, spare, white-haired old man, quiet for evermore. He was calm of feature and undisfigured as he lay on his back having been struck upon the hinder part of his head and thrown forward, and something like a tear or two had started from the closed eyes and lay wet upon the face. The uncommercial interest, sated at a glance, directed itself upon the striving crowd on either side and behind, wondering whether one might have guessed, from the expression of those faces merely, what kind of sight they were looking at. The differences of expression were not many. There was a little pity, but not much and that mostly with a selfish touch in it, as who would say, Shall I, poor I, look like that when the time comes? There was more of a secretly brooding contemplation and curiosity, as, That man I don't like and have the grudge against. Would such be his appearance, if someone, not to mention names, by any chance gave him a knock? There was a wolfish stare at the object, in which homicidal white-led worker shone conspicuous, and there was a much more general, purposeless, vacant staring at it, like looking at waxwork without a catalogue and not knowing what to make of it. But all these expressions concurred in possessing the one underlying expression of looking at something that could not return a look. The uncommercial notice had established this as very remarkable, when a new pressure all at once coming up from the street pinioned him ignominiously and hurried him into the arms— now sleeved again, of the custodian, smoking at his door, and answering questions between puffs, with a certain placid, meritorious air of not being proud, though high in office. 
and mentioning pride, it may be observed, by the way, that one could not well help investing the original sole occupant of the front row with an air depreciatory of the legitimate attraction of the poor old man, while the two in the second row seemed to exult at this superseded popularity. Pacing presently round the garden of the tower of Saint-Jacques de la Boucherie, and presently again in front of the Hôtel de Ville, I called to mind a certain desolate open-air morgue that I happened to light upon in London one day in the hard winter of 1861, and which seemed as strange to me at the time of seeing it as if I had found it in China. Towards that hour of a winter's afternoon, when the lamplighters are beginning to light the lamps in the streets a little before they are wanted, because the darkness thickens fast and soon, I was walking in from the country on the northern side of the Regent's Park, hard frozen and deserted, when I saw an empty hansom cab drive up to the lodge at Gloucester Gate, and the driver with great agitation called to the man there, who quickly reached a long pole from a tree, and deftly collared by the driver, jumped to the step of his little seat, and so the hansom rattled out at the gate, galloping over the iron-bound road. I followed, running, though not so fast but that when I came to the right-hand kennel bridge, near the cross-path to Chalk Farm, the hansom was stationary, the horse was smoking hot, the long pole was idle on the ground, and the driver and the park-keeper were looking over the bridge parapet. Looking over, too, I saw, lying on the towing-path, with her face turned up towards us, a woman, dead a day or two, and under thirty, as I guessed, poorly dressed in black. The feet were lightly crossed at the ankles, and the dark hair, all pushed back from the face, as though it had been the last action of her desperate hands, streamed over the ground. Dabbled all about her was the water and the broken ice that had dropped from her dress, and had splashed as she was got out. The policeman who had just got her out, and the passing costermonger who had helped him, was standing near the body, the latter with that stare at it which I have likened to being at a waxwork exhibition without a catalogue, the former looking over his stock with professional stiffness and coolness in the direction in which the bearers he had sent for were expected. So dreadfully forlorn, so dreadfully sad, so dreadfully mysterious, this spectacle of our dear sister here departed. A barge came up, breaking the floating ice and the silence, and a woman steered it. The man with the horse that towed it cared so little for the body that the stumbling hoofs had been among the hair, and the tow-rope had caught and turned the head, before our cry of horror took him to the bridle. At which sound the steering woman looked up at us on the bridge, with contempt unutterable and then looking down at the body with a similar expression, as if it were made in another likeness from herself, had been informed with other passions, had been lost by other chances, had had another nature dragged down to perdition, steered a spurning streak of mud at it, and passed on. A better experience, but also of the morgue kind, in which chance happily made me useful in a slight degree, arose to my remembrance as I took my way by the boulevard de Sebastopol to the brighter scenes of Paris. The thing happened, say, five-and-twenty years ago. I was a modest young uncommercial then, and timid and inexperienced. Many suns and winds have browned me in the line, but those were my pale days. Having newly taken the lease of a house in a certain distinguished metropolitan parish, a house which then appeared to me to be a frightfully first-class family mansion, involving awful responsibilities, I became the prey of a beetle. I think the beetle must have seen me going in or coming out, and must have observed that I tottered under the weight of my grandeur. Or he may have been in hiding under straw when I bought my first horse, 
in the desirable stable-yard attached to the first-class family mansion, and when the vendor remarked to me, in an original manner, on bringing him for approval, taking his cloth off and smacking him, "'There, sir, there's a horse!' And when I said gallantly, "'How much do you want for him?' And when the vendor said, "'No more than sixty guineas from you!' And when I said smartly, "'Why not more than sixty from me?' And when he said crushingly, "'Because upon my soul and body he'd be considered cheap at seventy by one who understood the subject, but you don't!' I say the beadle may have been in hiding under straw when this disgrace befell me, or he may have noted that I was too raw and young and atlas to carry the first-class family mansion in a knowing manner. Be this as it may, the beadle did what melancholy did to the youth in Gray's elegy. He marked me for his own. And the way in which the beadle did it was this. He summoned me as a juryman on his coroner's inquests. In my first feverish alarm I repaired for safety and for succour, like those sagacious northern shepherds who, having had no previous reason whatever to believe in young Norval, very prudently did not originate the hazardous idea of believing in him, to a deep householder. This profound man informed me that the beadle counted on my buying him off, on my bribing him not to summon me, and that if I would attend an inquest with a cheerful countenance and profess alacrity in that branch of my country's service, the beadle would be disheartened and would give up the game. I roused my energies, and the next time the wily beadle summoned me, I went. The beadle was the blankest beadle I have ever looked on when I answered to my name, and his discomfiture gave me courage to go through with it. We were impanelled to inquire concerning the death of a very little mite of a child. It was the old miserable story whether the mother had committed the minor offence of concealing the birth, or whether she had committed the major offence of killing the child, was the question on which we were wanted. We must commit her on one of the two issues. The inquest came off in the parish workhouse, and I have yet a lively impression that I was unanimously received by my brother juryman as a brother of the utmost conceivable insignificance also that before we began a broker who had lately cheated me fearfully in the matter of a pair of card-tables was for the utmost rigour of the law i remember that we sat in a sort of board-room on such very large square horsehair chairs that i wondered what race of patagonians they were made for and further that an undertaker gave me his card when we were in the full moral freshness of having just been sworn as an inhabitant that was newly come into the parish and was likely to have a young family the case was then stated to us by the coroner, and then we went downstairs, led by the plotting beadle, to view the body. From that day to this, the poor little figure, on which that sounding legal appellation was bestowed, has lain in the same place and with the same surroundings, to my thinking, in a kind of crypt devoted to the warehousing of the parochial coffins, and in the midst of a perfect panorama of coffins of all sizes, it was stretched on a box. The mother had put it in her box, this box, almost as soon as it was born, and it had been presently found there. It had been opened and neatly sewn up, and regarded from that point of view it looked like a stuffed creature. It rested on a clean white cloth, with a surgical instrument or so at hand, and regarded from that point of view it looked as if the cloth were laid and the giant were coming to dinner. There was nothing repellent about the poor piece of innocence, and it demanded a mere form of looking at. So we looked at an old pauper who was going about among the coffins with a foot-rule, as if he were a case of self-measurement, and we looked at one another, 
and we said the place was well whitewashed anyhow, and then our conversational powers as a British jury flagged, and the foreman said, "'All right, gentlemen. Back again, Mr. Beadle.' The miserable young creature who had given birth to this child within a very few days, and who had cleaned the cold, wet doorsteps immediately afterwards, was brought before us when we resumed our horsehair chairs, and was present during the proceedings. She had a horsehair chair herself, being very weak and ill, and I remember how she turned to the unsympathetic nurse who attended her, and who might have been the figurehead of a pauper ship, and how she hid her face and sobs and tears upon that wooden shoulder. I remember, too, how hard her mistress was upon her. She was a servant of all work, and with what a cruel pertinacity that piece of virtue spun her thread of evidence double, by intertwisting it with the sternest thread of construction. Smitten hard by the terrible low wail from the utterly friendless orphan girl, which never ceased during the whole inquiry, I took heart to ask this witness a question or two, which hopefully admitted of an answer that might give a favourable turn to the case. She made the turn as little favourable as it could be, but it did some good, and the coroner, who was nobly patient and humane, who was the late Mr. Wackley, cast a look of strong encouragement in my direction. Then we had the doctor who had made the examination, and the usual tests as to whether the child was born alive, but he was a timid, muddle-headed doctor, and got confused and contradictory, and wouldn't say this, and couldn't answer for that, and the immaculate broker was too much for him and our side slid back again. However, I tried again, and the coroner backed me again, for which I ever afterwards felt grateful to him, as I do now to his memory, and we got another favourable turn out of some other witness, some member of the family with a strong prepossession against the sinner, and I think we had the doctor back again, and I know that the coroner summed up for our side, and that I and my British brothers turned round to discuss our verdict, and get ourselves into great difficulties with our large chairs and the broker. At that stage of the case I tried hard again, being convinced that I had cause for it, and at last we found for the minor offence of only concealing the birth, and the poor desolate creature, who had been taken out during our deliberation, being brought in again to be told of the verdict, then dropped upon her knees before us, with protestations that we were right, protestations among the most affecting that I have ever heard in my life and was carried away insensible. Aside, in private conversation after this was all over, the coroner showed me his reasons as a trained surgeon for perceiving it to be impossible that a child could, under the most favourable circumstances, have drawn many breaths, in the very doubtful case of its having ever breathed at all. This, owing to the discovery of some foreign matter in the windpipe, quite irreconcilable with many moments of life. And aside, when the agonized girl had made those final protestations, I had seen her face, and it was in unison with her distracted, heart-broken voice, and it was very moving. It certainly did not impress me by any beauty that it had, and if I ever see it again in another world, I shall only know it by the help of some new sense or intelligence. But it came to me in my sleep that night, and I selfishly dismissed it in the most efficient way I could think of. I caused some extra care to be taken of her in the prison, and counsel to be retained for her defence when she was tried at the Old Bailey, and her sentence was lenient, and her history and conduct proved that it was right. In doing the little I did for her, I remember to have had the kind help of some gentle-hearted functionary to whom I addressed myself, but what functionary I have long forgotten, who I suppose was officially present at the inquest, 
I regard this as a very notable uncommercial experience, because this good came of a beetle, and to the best of my knowledge, information, and belief, it is the only good that ever did come of a beetle since the first beetle put on his cocked hat. End of chapter 19